What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Stories this week include a deep dive into Ethisphere's World's Most Ethical Company Awards and Attendant Reports. What is the price of NICE? Mary Shirley explores in CCI. The criminalization of sports corruption, an article in GAB. Are you FARA compliant? Jonathan Marks in Board and Fraud. James Comey channels Betty Davis and Jim Deloach. Hallie McDevitt reports in Compliance Week. How to Prevent Money Laundering, Aliyah Noor in Experts League. Where to Start with ESG Reporting, Marianne Raines in Risk and Compliance Matters. Should Compliance Have Outside Competition, Dick Casson in the FCPA blog. Are You Curious, Joe Murphy channels Tim Harford. And Are You Tone Deaf from the Top, John May in LinkedIn. All these stories, podcasts, events, two great new books, a discount to Ethisphere's Global Ethics Summits. All this and more on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. This Week in FCPA, episode 246 for the week ending April 2. 2021, the Gwikis edition. As the Great Women in Compliance podcast series hits its 100th anniversary and the first annual Gwikis are awarded, Tom and Jay are back to look at some of the week's other top compliance and ethics stories. Jay, what say ye? I say uh, congratulations to Mary and Lisa, uh, 100 episodes. It seems like a long time, but it also goes really fast, and it's great listening to the different things that you each look at during the week. And now Tom and I are going to look at the past week of the week ending April 2nd. What's first up, Tom? So, um, Jay, I uh, took a deep dive this week in my blog, the FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog, into the WME or the 2021 uh, World's Most Ethical Awards. On uh, Tuesday, I looked at the awards themselves, what they might win, what the ethics premium is this year. And then uh, the rest of the week, I took a look at three really fascinating reports put out by Ethisphere in conjunction with the WME award winners. And the first report is on uh, effectively managing a global workforce. The second is on third parties. And the third is on uh, communications and training. And the thing that makes these reports unique, Jay, is that they are compilations of the best practices of the WME awardees. So it's really the best of the best. And there was uh, some great stuff in there. There's a way, if you're a compliance professional, you can benchmark your program against it. If you find uh, that you need some ideas uh, or uh, things that uh, you want to remediate, there's some great information in there about strategies and tactics used by other companies. So it's a, a really a fabulous series and a fabulous set of reports 
put out by Ethisphere. Of course, we've linked to all of these. Uh, the price is right, Jay, because they're all available uh, for download at no charge to anyone in the um, anyone period. But I was going to say in the greater compliance community. So take a look at my blogs on this. Uh, take a look at the uh, WME winners and and uh, the ethics premium and how much money you actually make if you are a WME winner. And then take a look at the uh, individual reports I referenced because they really have some good stuff in there, whether you just want to benchmark, whether you want to remediate, whether you want to see where you are, whether you want some ideas. It's a, a great service to the compliance community. And kudos to Tim Ehrlich, Erica uh, Salmon-Burn, and the entire Ethisphere team for uh, putting out, once again, uh, the WME Awards and uh, these reports. Also, we'll re- repeat it at the end of the podcast, but the upcoming Ethisphere conference around the WMEs is the Global Ethics Summit, the GES. That's virtual this year. And uh, Ethisphere has uh, granted a discount to listeners of this podcast. The information is in the show notes, and we'll talk about it again. But I've looked at the agenda. It's a fabulous agenda. And uh, you, uh, if you're interested in the conference, this is the one for you or A1 for you. So check it all out. What do you see, Jay? Uh, Next up, uh, we're going to hear from Mary Shirley. Not only is she a wonderful podcaster, but she uh, writes every once in a while. This comes to us through the Corporate Compliance Insight uh, website, and it's called What is the Price of Nice? What happens when employee relations lack compliance and ethics oversight? This week, Mary Shirley took a look at the hiring process. This is an area often criticized by job seekers for a lack of common courtesy and respect extended to candidates. It's common for job candidates to progress significantly in a hiring process and then never hear back about whether or not they were ultimately successful in obtaining an offer. If this happens to you, sooner or later, you simply come to the conclusion that they've passed on you. Or perhaps you're told by an excited interviewer that you're going through to the next round and they request your availability for the next meeting on the spot, but the confirmation of the meeting never comes and despite all of the promise the role had one minute, you concluded that you've been ghosted the next. It takes a little time to send a pro forma thanks but no thanks message to candidates. The task can even be delegated to a junior person if the hiring manager thinks it's beneath them. I personally, I guess Mary personally, likes to engage with those who have expressed an interest in working with her and who have given her time in an interview. And yet some companies don't consider engaging with a rejected candidate to be a worthy investment of time. This, of course, leads to the obvious point that we should also treat existing staff with due respect and courtesy. Uh, We get some, I guess, a disturbing tweet here comes to us from Laura Bassett, senior culture and politics reporter at the Huff Post, and she shared an incident that occurred on March 8th that, if true, leads a bit to be desired. So this is at L.E. Bassett. Huff employees, after a year of working through a pandemic that isn't over, were invited to a meeting today with the password, quote, spring is here, unquote, and where they were told that 47 of them would be laid off. They would only know if they still had a job if they hadn't received an email by 1 p.m. Now, you must be thinking, that really sucks. But that's what HR is for. What does this have to do with compliance? And Mary's response would be, what happens when HR gets it wrong? If, however, as in the hiring scenario above, 
HR bungles what she suggests should be inherent job responsibilities to treat employees and third-party stakeholders with due care and concern, then maybe this should be something that compliance officers or other independent function, such as an ombudsman, can review. Certainly, several companies have ombudsmen, but it's not the norm. Too extreme? Perhaps, but in the instances where it could be avoided due to not being jerks to each other, it's not terribly high in expectation. The ethics and compliance function helps guide a company with respect to many projects and transactions. But at the end of the day, every individual demonstrates ownership of ethics and compliance by the respect we extend to others. And even the smallest business decisions we make, never has the old adage ever been more relevant. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, uh, next up, we have an article uh, by one of the most unique names uh, that we've had on this podcast, Obong Odo-Eo. And he writes in the Global uh, Anti-Corruption blog about or raises the question of the over-criminalization of sports corruption. Uh, Jay, uh, I think everyone understands what the oldest profession is. And the second oldest profession is said to be espionage. Well, other than Cain murdering Abel, the second oldest crime is probably corruption in sports, Uh, throwing games, throwing races. Um, Anytime gambling's involved, you have the potential for uh, nefarious actors and nefarious actions. So uh, sports corruption has been around probably as long as uh, two men decided to see who was the fastest between them. And um, the author, whose name I will not try to pronounce again, raises several questions uh, about the U.S. law, the Federal Sports Bribery Act. Number one is uh, not a question, but he he points out that similar to the FCPA, it only focuses on the uh, the buyer side. So the uh, the person uh, uh, who's actually paying the bribe, it doesn't really focus on those uh, who. receive the bribes. So that's obviously uh, interesting. But he raises three concerns is that um, corruption is a small, uh, low magnitude offense. Uh, I'm going to have some disagreements with these. Number two, that there will be a disparate impact on uh, minority athletes because uh, African-Americans make up the majority of pro and professional, pro and college sports. And then three, um, that criminalization is unnecessary to address the problem because the leagues can do it himself. Well, uh, let's start with number three. Uh, to think the NCAA can do anything ever, period, is uh, a, a pipe dream. And for them to police themselves, they've shown that they are the most inept organization, perhaps, not just in the United States, but in the history of sports leagues. So we have to throw that one out. Um uh, simply because African-Americans make up the majority of uh, pro athletes. I don't think that's a reason not to have a law against bribery because it is a problem. And it's a problem because it uh, takes away the trust factor from one of the uh, uh, biggest recreational activities to this day, uh, not simply in the United States, but across the world. And if you think about the gambling industry, and if we maybe take it out of the sort of moral context and think about it as a business, that it's been legitimized, it's recognized 
at the federal level now as legitimate business that the business is based on a fair competition or at least competition that's not corrupt. Um, so this is not, you know, Bill Belichick and Spygate. This is not uh, uh, Tommy Brady and whether he deflated some balls so he could get a better grip on them. This is paying money for people to throw games. And it's not an equipment issue. It's actually corruption. And so I find uh, that that is, is not uh, really valid either. But at the, then at the end of the article, he really turns the tables and says, no, we, we really do need to do this because it is important. And uh, so I do agree with the, his conclusion. I'm not quite sure how he got there, but I do give him points and kudos for raising the issue of criminalization of sports corruption. Uh, obviously, the FIFA scandal was huge, um, and that still resonates today. Uh, uh, there was an announcement by the Swiss prosecutor about it this week. So it's an issue, Jay, that I think is going to become more important as sports gambling becomes a larger uh, economic force, not only for the states, but also at the federal level. So next up, we've got something from the uh, prolific Jonathan Marks writing in his board and fraud blog. And with the title, let's talk about FARA. FARA, the Federal Agents Registration Act, was enacted in 1938, and the law requires certain agents of foreign principals who are engaged in political activities or other activities specified under the statute to make periodic public disclosure of their relationships with any foreign principals, as well as activities, receipts, and disbursements in support of those activities. Disclosure of the required information facilitates evaluation by the government and the American people of activities of such persons in light of their function as foreign agents. The FAR unit of the Counterintelligence and Export Control Section and the National Security Division is responsible for administrating FARA. It's important, it, this is an important tool to identify foreign influence in the United States and address national security threats. A FARA violation can lead to criminal liability with serious consequences, a willful failure to register, a willfully false statement of a material fact, or a willful admission of material fact is punishable by up to five years of imprisonment and a fine. Determining whether registration is required necessitates understanding whether there's a foreign principal involved, and if so, whether there is an agent who is engaged in Co co covered activities. The next step will be to determine if one of the exemptions applies. Political activities can encompass more than it seems at first glance. When people hear the term political activities, they may think of lobbying Congress because that has been the traditional focus of political activities. It also refers to meetings with people in the executive branch, meetings with regulators, and other activities. The DOJ's focus on FARA enforcement seems to stem from a recent surge in new registrants and foreign principals under the statute. Actually, according to the report to Congress, there were twice as many in 2019 compared to 2016 and nearly double the amount of short-form registrants. FARA did not seem see much action for some time, and this new environment changes the risk landscape of entities that may be engaging in activities that require regist registration. 
David Lofman, a partner in Wigan and Dana, says we're not going back to the historic era that preceded the enforcement surge when there was a more relaxed enforcement posture by the department. I don't see the toothpaste going back into the tube. Next, Amy Jeffries, a partner in Arnold and Porter and a former prosecutor, agreed. I don't expect the Biden administration will be backing down on FARA. The interest in FARA has increased among her clients recently. We are seeing a lot of companies seeking our advice on how exactly they need to proceed to comply with FARA, whether they need to change the nature of the activities they are doing so that they do not have a registration obligation, or whether they need to register or have an agent register on their behalf. In the last year and a half, they've been doing more FARA presentations for clients at their request than ever before. Now let's take a look at penalties. The penalties for a willful violation is imprisonment for not more than five years and a fine up to $250,000 or both. Certain violations are considered misdemeanors and penalties of imprisonment or not more than six months, a fine of not more than 5,000 or both. In closing, the DOJ's increased focus is real. Why? Brendan L. Van Grack is now a leading fire enforcement unit and he is the high-profile prosecutor who stated that compliance is fact and entity-specific. Furthermore, it's dependent on the entity, the relationship the foreign entity has with the foreign government, the relationship the foreign entity has with a domestic entity, and how the engagement will occur, the type of engagement, the purpose of the engagement, and the beneficiaries, beneficiaries of the engagement. There are so many variables that while constructing guardrails for fire compliance is possible, there's unfortunately not a one-size-fit-all solution. Uh, we've linked to this in the show notes. Jonathan goes on to give examples of numerous cases and also define some of the key terms in FARA. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, what do James Comey, Betty Davis, and Jim Deloach all have in common? Um, they're all in for a bumpy flight. Wow, you are a 2021 kind of guy. Um, you know, Mr. <laughs> no grass growing on that head of Mr. Monitors. <laughs> the uh, James Comey gave a speech at a Compliance Week conference this week. And Jay, what struck me is he echoed many of the uh, remarks and ideas that Jim Deloach uh, had in an article that you reported about last week on This Week in FCPA, and that uh, Pat Harnett and I did a podcast series on uh, around the ECI 2021 Global Business Ethics Survey. And Comey said that, uh, but Comey, of course, added the, the Comey spin and his own uh, version of Betty Davis eyes. And that included not only that employees are under additional pr pr pressure and vulnerable to being misused uh, during this um, time of COVID-19, but he overlaid a, a couple of other factors, and, and one of which I'm really going to ask you and your um, AMI colleagues to think about, Jay. He talked about the importance of culture. No, uh, nothing new there. And he emphasized that if you don't have culture, uh, you really don't have anything. That bad or culture goes bad the way air goes bad. You can't see it, you can't feel it, uh, but you know it's bad. But what he said that I found most interesting, Jay, was, uh, and this uh, comes to us from Ali McDivitt at Compliance Week. He predicted the decade ahead would be akin to the Roaring Twenties. Following the twenty, uh, following the nineteen eighteen flu pandemic, which would be both exciting and terrifying.
for compliance professionals, it will introduce an extraordinary breadth of new challenges. And I thought about that analogy, and um, the Roaring Twenties is largely attributed to the end of the war and uh, rather than the end of the pandemic. But since one of the responses to the pandemic has been the absolute flood of money by the Fed into the economy to keep it propped up and to keep the U.S. as the world's really most powerful economic engine, that uh, if you talk to people in the M&A space, they're expecting just a huge explosion of deals because, frankly, there is so much money out there. And people who couldn't get the multiples they were looking for because their numbers went down in 2020, they're holding on. And there are people out there with a ton of cash just looking to invest it. And so all of that may mean, and, you know, we've got SPACs. We've talked about that. Um, We've talked about the DOJ uh, focusing on uh, the pre-acquisition part of M&A. I know you've done that professionally as a part of your career, Jay. And now I think we're poised to have... Uh, really an explosion of growth. And and Comey really, I think, is on to something that it, it may be uh, literally the roaring 2020s uh, because there's so much cash now. And, and when you have cash and you spend that cash, guess what? That generates more cash. And so uh, whether that's moving to a bubble, uh, I'm not going to uh, go that far yet, but um, the kind of all of these things coalesced in the last year uh, around the pandemic and how we had to change how we do business, the technological developments that have allowed companies to be much more business efficient, the working from home, um, the millennials and Gen Zs who uh, are really rising up and saying, no, we're not going to work 100-hour weeks. We're going to have to treat us like human beings. Um all of that is going to make things very bumpy in the night, whether you're on the Concord, if they bring the Concord back, or whether you're driving cross country on uh, getting your kicks on Route 66. You better have a seatbelt and you better have your compliance function ready, willing, and able to oversee these risks. So, you know, it, it's always with Comey, it's always the Comey spin. But he really did channel Betty Davis, and he really did channel channel Jim Deloach, and he really did channel ECI, and he really did channel uh, Ethosphere in many ways. So I think everyone is seeing something close to the same thing, Jay. It may have a little different variant, but um, uh, it is going to be a bumpy ride, and uh, I may actually put on my uh, shoulder harness in addition to my seatbelt. So I've got a dog behind me that doesn't seem too happy, so that there might be a bark coming your way. Uh, next up, we're turning to our colleague, Alia Noor, and she writes in the Experts League blog. We're going to take a look at how to prevent money laundering. There are five pillars of money laundering that help an organization reach AML compliance. They are first, designate an AML compliance officer. Second, create written internal policies, procedures, and controls. Third, ensure continuous AML program training for employees. Four, provide an independent review by a third party. And finally, do customers due diligence. In line with anti-money laundering regulations, financial institutions are required to perform customer due diligence to prevent money laundering and other financial crimes. As many of our listeners know, consumer 
excuse me, customer due diligence is a process of identifying or verifying the information of a customer or beneficial owner and whether a natural or legal person or a legal engagement and the nature of its activities, as well as the purpose of the business relationship and the ownership structure and control. There are four core elements of a CDD program, customer identification and verification, beneficial ownership identification, understanding the nature and the purpose of the customer relationship, and ongoing monitoring for reporting suspicious transactions on a risk basis, maintaining and updating customer information. There are two different levels of due diligence, simplified and enhanced. Simplified due diligence ensures that regulations allow you to carry out simplified due diligence where you're satisfied that the business relationship or transaction presents a low risk. The measures to apply in this case are verifying the identity of the customer and beneficial owner, updating the customer's data based on frequent intervals, reducing the rate of ongoing monitoring and transaction checks, and concluding the purpose and nature of the business relationship based on the type of transaction or the business relation that has been established. In contrast, enhanced due diligence must be applied when the risk of money laundering is high. The regulation sets out a list of circumstances in which enhanced due diligence measures must be applied. It includes any transaction or business relationship involving a person established in a high-risk country, a politically exposed person or family member or known associate of a family member, and three, any other situation that represents a higher risk of money laundering. Enhanced CDD requires that the following measures be applied to manage high risks. Additional information on customer and beneficial ownership entity, additional information purposes of the business relationship, updating the CDD information of the customer and beneficial owner more systematically, identifying the source of funds of the customer and beneficial owner, and five, additional ongoing monitoring procedures to identify unusual or suspicious transactions. Here are the three final takeaways. Performing customer due diligence is a skill that every compliance officer should have. A typical investigation of a politically suspicious transaction should, at the beginning, start with a CDD. Identification of the ultimate benefit owner is the key preventative measure of the CDD rule. And finally, each business needs to specifically tailor its own CDD process. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, uh, next up, we have an article by another first-time writer. I should have identified uh, Mr. Uh, Obong as a first-time contributor to this week. But we have Marianne Range writing in Navex Global's Risk and Compliance Matters uh, blog, uh, where to start with ESG, that WSG uh, reporting. Sorry for that uh, title uh, bar. But uh, it's really a prescient article, Jay, and I think because – uh, there's certainly an explosion of discussion around ESG, what to report, how to report, what are the standards, um, and she really lays out some basics that I think everyone can uh, follow. So number one, uh, who is interested in ESG? Well, employees, consumers, business partners, and investors. Now, that's obviously a disparate group, but that's four of the five groups listed in the uh, Business Roundtable statement on the purpose of a corporation. So really no surprise there. But she says um, 
where to um, uh, where should you start? And uh, she gives four general points that I thought were excellent, which is number one, determine your end goal. Start by asking yourself where you want to go and work backward from there. Two, are your goals focused on investor interest? And here you might look at SASB or other industry standards that tend to look at ESG through investors' lenses, but they there may be other lenses. So you might want to check out some of those metrics. Three, do you want to fo- focus on social metrics? The Global Reporting Initiative has been around and has a great framework that incorporates environmental, economic, and social metrics, which could align you. And then are you broadening your initiatives? Is your program advanced or uh, could it, could it uh, go further? A carbon disclosure project or sustainability goals, uh, looking at things such as the UN Sustainability Development Goals or the World Economic Forum can provide you for goals and uh, ESG initiatives. So um, I'm really going to be on a crusade, Jay, that every compliance practitioner needs to be aware of ESG and they need to be um, thinking about what it means and compliance really needs to lead this uh, discussion around ESG uh, going forward. So what's up next, Jay? Uh, Next, we're going to ask the question, should compliance have outside competition? The additionally prolific and founder of the FCPA blog, Dick Casson, weighs in. We all know that about corporate life. Support functions are the exclusive responsibility of designated groups. If you need or want compliance help, for example, you have to ask the compliance department. That's a good thing, right? Well, a few years ago, the former dean of the business school at the University of Toronto, Roger Martin, said, granting corporate support groups monopolies just doesn't work. Like all monopolies, staff groups have tended to become efficient, inefficient rather, expensive and unresponsive. Martin cited a McKinsey research that showed that senior executives had only a 30% satisfaction level in their corporate functions. To fix that, he proposed forcing staff to compete with outside vendors. The only way to have efficient, effective corporate functions is to take away their monopoly to serve. Frustrated CEOs have already broken the IT department's monopolies. They outsourced the function, and the results were so spectacular that it spurred the growth of IT outsourcing into a global business. Competition would work not only for IT, but for HR, legal, and others, he said. But what about compliance? Should it be forced to compete with outside providers? If sales and marketing wants an external opinion about a compliance issue, should they be allowed to retain outside compliance experts? What would happen if outsiders could supplant or override internal compliance decisions? Compliance is different from other staff groups. They're corporate gatekeepers. The core function is to help the company and its people stay out of legal and ethical harm. To do that, they need some level of independence, skepticism, and the ability to willingly and willingness to sometimes just say no. A result of forcing compliance to compete with outsiders would be rampant forum shopping. Any threatened or actual no from compliance would spur sales and marketing to bypass the gatekeeper and look for a pliable outsider who could get to yes. Outside competition works for IT. It's a job to put what's needed into a toolbox, different tools for different jobs. Compliance doesn't always work that way. There's no such thing as equivalent choices between legal and illegal, ethical and unethical, and keeping the difference clear is what corporate gatekeepers do. 
So who should pay for support functions? Compliance with tax, accounting, and similar regulatory requirements was the one allocation activity that a majority of respondents considered to be highly effective. These allocations are usually unavoidable. Most executives understand that compliance protects them and the company. Cost allocations within reasons aren't the biggest concern. Being highly effective in their core function is the priority. Still, compliance leaders can learn something important from Roger Martin and his ideas about competition. Internal corporate monopolies aren't an invitation to be complacent or to lord it over anyone. Instead, compliance should use its protective space to constantly improve, experiment, be creative, and learn new things. What responsible gatekeeper wouldn't welcome the chance to compete daily against itself? Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, next up we have an article by uh, Joe Murphy. And when Joe Murphy speaks, you need to listen. And when he writes, you need to read it because it's always great stuff. Well, he wrote a short piece in LinkedIn based on a book he just read by Tim Harford. Uh, He's the undercover economist. And I've uh, read part of the book. I've listened to multiple podcasts by, uh, uh, where Tim has been the guest talking about the book. So um, what Joe focused on, though, is the issue of curiosity or curiousness. And what I found most interesting, Jay, is uh, you may have heard I have several podcasts. And uh, yeah, I know. Shocking, shocking. But um, there is podcast going on on the Compliance Podcast Network. Shocking. One of the most uh, common traits I get from entrepreneurs, particularly serial entrepreneurs, business executives, and chief compliance officers on my series, The Compliance Life, is their inherent and incessant curiosity. They are always interested in learning more. They are always interested in finding out more. They are interested in asking questions. Jonathan Marks might say skepticism is uh, a part of curiosity because he's certainly a big old skeptic. And um, but uh, so it was interesting that Joe's interpretation of Tim Harford's book was around asking questions and being curious. Don't simply, well, you know, I read it on the Internet. It must be true. Um, So uh, not like the New York Times or Washington Post. So. or other papers. So uh, kudos to Joe, but I would ask you as a compliance professional, if you're listening to this podcast, are you curious? Are you listening to podcasts? Are you reading uh, not simply technical literature in our field, but uh, a wide variety of other uh, disciplines because uh, compliance is becoming much broader. So be curious and ask questions. Jay? So for my last article, we've got something from John May that he published on LinkedIn, and it's from uh, a blog called Tone Deaf at the Top, Failures and Foibles from the C-Suite. John discusses why it is a rational economic decision for our board of directors to authorize a company to conduct business in a country where there is a significant chance that the company will be embroiled in an unlawful act. So imagine this, you're the chief general counsel for Asteroid Explorers Incorporated, and the CEO has asked the board of directors to approve a venture in one of Tom's favorite vacation spots, Equatorial Guinea. 
to develop a launch facility for your new out-of-space mining venture. He tells the board it will save the company $200 million over launching for the U.S. Well, you've done your homework. You've spoken to some colleagues who have done business there in the past and found out that this place is one of the most corrupt countries on the planet to do business. So you strongly recommend to the board that they turn this down. And the chairman of the board, the CEO's uncle, tells you that, of course, they attend to obey all U.S. law, but asks what would happen if one of their third-party consultants pays a bribe. The answer? Not much. In February of 2020, Professors Dorothy Lund of the University of Southern California and Natasha Sarin of my alma mater, University of Pennsylvania, published a groundbreaking study on corporate crime and punishment. As to the likelihood that any particular company would be investigated, they concluded that since the early 2000s, enforcement agencies have pursued fewer cases against corporations, brought fewer actions against individuals, and increased the number of settlements. But the chairman asks, what will happen if the company is targeted? Again, the answer, not much. From 2006 to 2019, for example, only 12 corporations were convicted after a trial. Typically, the DOJ would settle cases with companies using a plea agreement. Today, an increasing share of corporate criminal enforcement actions are settled without a plea using a non-prosecution NPA or deferred prosecution DPA. The percentage of corporate criminal cases that are settled remains much higher than early 2000 levels. Relatedly, the number of corporate declinations where the, comp- where the Department of Justice determines that a case has merit but is not pursued because of voluntary disclosure, full cooperation, remediation, payment of disgorgement, forfeiture, or other restitution are rising for FCPA cases. Jokingly, one of the board members asked, well, if we get caught and do it again, what will happen to us? And your answer again is not much. To study corporate recidivism, John recently relied on a public company enforcement data from Brandon Garrett. Garrett has studied recidivism by financial institutions, noting that federal prosecutors repeatedly settle criminal cases with the same banks over a short period. These financial institution recidivists that we've all read about include AIG, Barclays, Credit Suisse, HSBC, JP Morgan, and others. But your complete compliance officer says, hold it. What about people like Bernie Evers, the CEO of WorldCom, who was prosecuted for security fraud? He got 25 years in prison. Or what about Richard Scrooge or Jeffrey Skilling, CEO of Enron? Well, you respond, as Shakespeare wrote, there's the rub. The company's chances of getting caught in the first place are not very high, and the likelihood that the company would face criminal charges are pretty low. But here's the rub. If a federal prosecutor takes a particular disliking to one of the executives, he or she will gladly be sacrificed by the board. The executive may go bankrupt paying legal fees. His or her family will be devastated by the experience, and he or she may go to prison, but hopefully for only a couple of years. Hearing all that, what does the board do? In most cases, they set up shop in Equatorial Guinea. It directs the CEO to make sure all their compliance training is up to date, just in case. Tom, back to you. So, Jay, we are at the section of the podcast where we take up some of the 
podcasts and events over the past podcasts over the past week and events that are upcoming. And we have to start with a big congratulations and to Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine, the great women in compliance for hitting their hundredth anniversary edition. A great milestone. I think uh, probably behind uh, me and you, uh, that's uh, pretty close to uh, number two for the top number of episodes. So uh, congrats to Lisa and Mary. Uh, Both Jay and I have been on their podcast. Um, I've had them on my podcast. Uh, They gave one of the people, probably the only People's Choice Awards in compliance were awarded in their episode, the Gwikis. Uh, Jay and I are both uh, very honorary winners of the first annual Gwikis Award. So uh, I frankly can't wait to see uh, where they take uh, the next hundred. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, the the Gwikis, the great women, and Lisa and Mary? Uh, they just have such a great attitude and uh you know, the story is been told about us being together at a conference and them saying, well, you know, how come we don't have a, a podcast that deals with the great women in compliance and somebody challenged them to go out and create it and they've done so. Um, they're just a great resource for the community and um, I haven't seen them in a while, but I look forward to seeing you guys in, fu- in person in the future and we can uh, toast your success then. Uh, Tom, it looks like we've got another new podcast for the CPN who's joining us now. Jay, I am extraordinarily pleased that MOFO, yes, the law firm of Morrison and Forster, has joined the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, our friend, uh, James Kukio, partner James Kukios, uh, heads what's called the Mo Forecast podcast. And it talks about a wide variety of white collar uh, issues, FCPA, FCA. Uh, this week's episode uh, had James speaking to his fellow partner, uh, Brandon Van Grack, on national security under uh, the Biden administration. It's a fabulous podcast. James is a great interviewer. Uh, fans of the uh, FCPA report know James for doing the uh, uh, MOFOs uh, top 10 anti-corruption podcast or, or articles, and then he does a podcast with me every couple of months on them. So, uh, kudos. Uh, we have uh, Bofo joining. Uh, last week we had CSS with uh, RegTech and Coffee, and now we've got Mofo. We all have uh, some more coming on board next week. Obviously, we have Integrity Through Compliance, the um, Affiliated Monitors podcast. So the Compliance Podcast Network continues to grow. On this week's episode of Coffee and Regs, that's the CSS uh, podcast. Host Natalie Silverman. Uh, talked to former Chief Compliance Officers Matt Calabro and Allison Frazier about direct pension fund independent compliance reviews. Sounds like to me another angle that AMI needs to take a look at, but I'll leave that to you, Mr. Business Development. So, Jay, um, also, uh, Sarah Haddon has published a book I wrote. I wrote a 2020 uh, recap of the year in FCPA in review, and she has published this, and it's available in ebook only on the CCI site. But here's the kicker, Jay. It's at no cost. So if you want to review what happened uh, last year, and the Lord knows a lot happened, um, the biggest FCPA year ever, the biggest FCPA fine ever, the biggest international anti-corruption fine ever, 
uh, the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, the FCPA resource guide, second edition, numerous SEC, FCPA actions, uh, some massive cases. This is the publication for you. Uh, thanks to Sarah for publishing my book. And uh, please uh, take a look at it. You, you can't beat it. It is, frankly, Jay, the top resource for review of 2020 and something that every compliance practitioner can use going forward. Well, congrats on that, Tom. Um, we're just going to repeat, as uh, Tom said earlier in the podcast, he and I uh, will be at Ethisphere's 2021 Global Ethics Summit. It will be held virtually from April 13th to the 15th. And listeners to this podcast, will, it's not free, but we will give you a 15% discount to Ethisphere's Global Ethics Summit. And for more information and registration details, please check the show notes and use the code TOMFOX15 for your discount. And one more discount offer, but by no means is it a discounted publication. Tom announces his latest book, The Compliance Handbook, Second Edition. It's available for pre-sale purpose, a uh, purchase rather, and you can use the code all in caps FOX25. We also provide a link for that. And uh, Tom, anything else we need to talk about or have we finished our potpourri? Well, uh, Jay, I would just sort of end on, we have the confluence of uh, two of the world's major religions with uh, two of their most important holidays this week. And uh, so I wanted to wish the Rosen family, uh, whatever the equivalent to happy Passover is. Uh, uh, and I hope that uh, you had a, a great Cedar dinner, uh, Seder dinner with uh, your family and that you were able to communicate with your loved ones via Zoom or any that you could see. Uh, I know that uh, you you and your families get together, reg- you got together regularly before the pandemic and you continue to do so um, for uh, through Zoom and, and other uh channels available to you and of course uh, tomorrow or uh, today rather is good friday and then sunday is easter i plan to uh celebrate by coming out of my lent uh dispensation of no desserts i've got lots of chocolate cake lined up easter bunnies easter eggs easter cookies um i may have to start a little early on saturday uh just to get a head start so i'm looking forward uh, to that and and uh, well wish to you and your family. And same to you and Mrs. Compliance. Uh, as you all know, Tom Fox is the voice of compliance, and he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor. You can reach me at the initial Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. So for the week ending April 2nd, 2021, the Gwikis edition, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 246. As Tom said, we wish you all happy holidays, and we look forward to seeing you again next week on This Week in FCPA. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA.
Thursday. Please join us on the live stream on This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.